One of my hobbies, one of my most precious hobbies, is the study of architecture. And I really can't tell you how many old homes and buildings that I have dragged my wife and daughters through. I'm sure probably more than nearly anybody else that, you know, lives on planet Earth. I'm so into that study that I'm a member of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. And when that magazine from that organization comes, Preservation Magazine, uh, it gets consumed by me at our house. The motto of the National Trust is people saving places. And one section of that magazine is called Transitions. Now, in the transition section, there are pictures and descriptions of architecturally significant buildings that are threatened with collapse or demolition, buildings that were recently lost to demolition, and of course, those who read the magazine mourn those deeply, and ones that have been saved through preservation efforts. And as you would expect, the writers, when they get to that last category, are just enraptured by the buildings that have been saved, stripped of decades of updates, and restored to their original state. Now, one of the most important questions to answer as we look at our passage this morning, the passage of Mark chapter 2, verse 18 to 3-6, is this. Was Jesus a preservationist, or was he a demolitionist? When it came to the practices of fasting and keeping one day in seven holy to the Lord, did Jesus implode these rites, or did he strip them of generations of additions and modifications? Now, I think the answer to these questions is most important for how we live our lives. Because if Jesus cleared the lot, if he tore everything down, Sunday can be treated like just any other day in the week. We can do on it what we please, treat it any way we want. And we need not consider the possibility of ever engaging in fasting. But if Jesus is restoring these practices to the original architecture, to what they were intended to be, then we have to consider what it means for us as we endeavor to be God's faithful disciples. Now look again with me at Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Follow as I read. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now actually, under the Mosaic law, there was only one fast that was obligatory to all of the people of God. And that was the fast that was held on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Now, the Day of Atonement was that day on the Jewish calendar, that annual event, where sacrifice was offered to cleanse the place where God met with his people. First, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and later, the temple. It was also that day on which sacrifices were offered to cleanse the people from their sins that they had committed during the previous year. On the Day of Atonement, from sundown to sundown, and that's how the Jewish days were reckoned, God's people were to deny themselves food. Now, the Day of Atonement was not only a fast day, 
but it was an additional Sabbath in the year. And so on that day, the people of God were to only do that work which was absolutely uh, essential, that work that uh, was required to be done every day. However, there are many examples, even though there was only this one feast day um, that was obligatory, there are many examples of corporate and private fasting in Scripture. In Joel chapter 2, verse 12, the Lord commands all the people of the southern kingdom, that is Judah, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and your garments. Return to the Lord your, <clears throat> the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And I would call out to you for your notice that fasting is almost, well, is, is often attended, I'll say it that way, with weeping and mourning and a broken heart. In the book of Esther, the Jews of Persia are going to be eradicated. And a beautiful Jewish girl has sovereignly been made queen of the realm. And her cousin Mordecai, hearing that the Jews are going to be eradicated, goes to her and he tells her, he pleads with her, to go into the king and to plead for the salvation of the Jewish nation. Now, to do that without having been invited was to risk death. And so Esther understands what is at stake for her if she goes in, but she also understands what's at stake for the people of God if she doesn't, that she is their only hope. And so she tells her cousin in 416, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days. I and my maids will also fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now, fasting is not just an exercise that we find in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, book of Acts, chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, the leaders of the church at Antioch are together, and they're worshiping, they're praying, but they're also fasting. And we read that the Holy Spirit instructed them to set apart Barnabas and Saul for missionary work while they were engaged in fasting. In Acts 13, 3, we read this. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on these two missionaries, they ordained them, and sent them off. In Acts 14, 23, prayer and fasting are vital parts of the appointment of elders in the churches that Paul and Barnabas founded on their missionary journeys. Now, Jesus fasted before he entered his public ministry. We know about that from places like Matthew 4, uh, verse 2. And he affirmed the practice for his disciples. In Matthew 6, 16 through 18, Jesus said, When you fast, do not look somber like the hypocrites do. They disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. When you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So Jesus talking about a reward for people who are fasting in the appropriate way. 
Now, if there is only one mandated fast in Scripture, that fast on the Day of Atonement, why are there so many references of fasting in Scripture? And there really are quite a few. And if Yom Kippur ended with Jesus' death and resurrection, the sacrifice that he made for sin, the sacrifice that the sacrifices on the uh, Day of Atonement pointed toward, why do we see the church fasting after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension? Well, we see individual Old Testament believers and the church in the Old Testament fasting at days and times other than the Day of Atonement because God called his people at various times during the Old Testament era to fast in special circumstances. In Joel 1, 13 through 14, you have that example. Uh, Israel is faced, Judah is faced with calamity. They're about to be destroyed, and God calls a fast for the people of God. In light of the divine instruction for congregational fasting on special occasions, it would be natural for Old Testament believers to do private fasting when they faced circumstances that were similar to the ones that God called them to fast for, uh, when it happened in their own lives, it would be just normal for them to fast if they had been fasting for um, special things um, for the nation that God had called them to fast for. And since the situations that provoked fasting by the church and individuals in the Old Testament still exist and will exist till Jesus returns, it would be natural to see New Testament believers to continue in the book of Acts um, the fasting. Now, when you read the many verses that talk about fasting in Scripture, I think this is what you will conclude. Fasting is not like the reading of Scriptures. It's not like hearing the Word of God uh, proclaimed like you are doing now. It's not like the singing of hymns, which we have done, or the right administration and receiving of the sacraments. It's not like prayer. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 21, verse 5 says that these things that I just mentioned are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God, whereas, as it continues, oaths, vows, fastings, and thanksgivings are used to worship God on special occasions. So, on Thanksgiving morning, the elders of Faith Church have called us to come together and to worship God with thanksgiving. That's one of those extraordinary worship experiences that is different from the regular worship of God that we participate in uh, Sunday after Sunday, week after week. The, the special occasions for fasting are typically these. An individual, our church, is facing an unusual uh, unusually serious threat. Uh, fasting is practiced when an individual is grieving over the deplorable state of the church or his or her own uh, spiritual condition or maybe conditions in the nation. Uh, when guidance from the Lord is sought for decision-making. John Calvin wrote this about fasting. He said, fasting is for any prayers that require more than ordinary attention. Fasting attends the heaviest burdens that we would take to the Father in prayer. Now, in Scripture, uh, fasting is nearly always, if not always, linked to prayer. 
Calvin wrote again, we certainly experience that after a full meal, the mind does not so rise toward God as to be borne along by earnest and fervent longing for prayer and preservation in prayer. You see, fasting renders us more alert for the contemplation of God and his will, for self-examination, for confession and repentance, for listening to God speak to us through his word, by his spirit, as we pour out our needs before him, and for petitioning God for the things that we desperately need. Fasting is never an end in itself. Uh, If we fast without the things that I just mentioned, we're really not fasting, we're just dieting. In Scripture, fasting is typically accompanied by mourning for our sin and for the sins of others, for the spiritual condition of church and society. Uh, This deep brokenness that we have when we come to fast or often have when we come to fast is um, uh, something that we see in Scripture that usually or can attend uh, is attended by weeping. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, Nehemiah hears reports of the destruction of Jerusalem and the walls that are still down. And it says that he, he prayed and he fasted and he wept for the condition of the city of Jerusalem. The constant refrain of Scripture with regard to preparation for prayer is very similar to what I'm going to read you from James 4.10. You often find this Uh, in regard to prayer. There James writes, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. In fasting-focused prayer, we are positioned both to see our ultimate dependency upon God, which is what biblical humbling really is. It's a recognition that uh, we need him desperately, that we cannot cope on our own without his help that we are totally dependent upon him, and express what true, what true humility to God is. We see and admit to ourselves in the Lord that we can do nothing to control the situation we face. If change is to come in our situation, it's got to be of God's doing. Brought to such a place of humility, God often gives his people those things that they desperately long after. And you can see that in scriptures. That's what happened in Esther. Uh, God granted the request, and the people of God obviously were saved. Over time, fasts in Israel multiplied. God allowed and encouraged fasting as special acts of worship. But the leaders of Israel, the religious and political leaders, institutionalized those extraordinary fasts and they required all of Israel to keep them. In addition to that, they pushed, they prodded, they demanded that people, the people of God, engage in many, many personal and private fasts that went beyond um, the official fast for the whole nation. The net effect of making the special means of worship the ordinary means was that by the time Jesus is asked this question that's before us in Mark 2.18, the Pharisees are fasting two times every week. We are told that in Luke 18.12. And John's disciples were around, and they were fasting a lot, uh, probably because they were following the pattern of John, who was an ascetic, and because they were deeply burdened 
for repentance in the nation, and so they were engaged in lots of fasting. Now, Jesus and his disciples didn't join in the man-made feasts. The fact that Jesus and his disciples didn't follow the pattern of those around them made them stick out, as you would expect. They stand out from the crowd. And this guarantees that Jesus is going to be asked this question, how is it that John the baptizer's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now, this is how Jesus answers that question in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. He says, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Uh, a Jewish wedding was an amazing thing. Uh, the party went on for seven days. It was uh, seven days of feasting and song and merriment, joyous celebration. And fasting at such a time would be totally inappropriate. And even the Pharisees, if they were called to be groomsmen uh, and to participate in a wedding of a friend, would not have fasted during a wedding. Fasting, as we have alluded to, is for times of grief and mourning and calamity, not for a wedding. To fast while the promised Messiah was present, while he was doing gracious miracles for people, and while he was speaking words of hope and of love and of joy, would have been absolutely absurd. Now, maybe you caught it uh, in what Jesus says in verse 20. Uh, there's the prediction of the cross. In the phrase, um, will be taken away, the bridegroom will be taken away. The, the language that's used there speaks of a violent snatching away. The cross will take Jesus, will snatch the bridegroom from his disciples. And they can fast then, but now is not the time for fasting. We can readily imagine what happened on Good Friday. And we can imagine the disciples of Jesus fasting then, can't we? I mean, their faith was shaken to its very foundations. We can see them fasting and meditating and pouring their heart out to God, what's next, protect us, and all of those sorts of things. The bridegroom groom would be taken on Good Friday, and the joy would end for a time. But by Easter Sunday evening, uh, fasting for these disciples would be over, uh, for a time at least, in the joyful news that Jesus is risen, and they have seen him. Now, it could also be that Jesus is referring in 2.20 to our time as being the appropriate time for fasting, the time in which we live right now. Think about it. Jesus was raised from death. He was with his disciples, his apostles for a time, and then he ascended to his heavenly Father in heaven. So we know that he's present with us. He's present in a very special way this morning with us because we have gathered together in his name. But he's present by his spirit. He's not bodily present with us. And life in this world that we still have to live with him in heaven is impacted in every way by uh, sin and the curse upon the planet. Um, my wife and I have had a very easy life, but it's not been without tears. Uh, everyone goes through hardship to some degree in this life. 
And I go around saying often that life when it's good is hard. Think about it. We must cope with heartbreak and disappointment, difficult and broken relationships. There's illnesses that we face and sometimes a treatment for the illness that seems to be at least as bad as the illness itself. And we deal with death of loved ones and we face our own. Work can be crushing at times and then sometimes it's non-existent and that's a problem. We must battle our own temptation to sin and live with the consequences of our sin. God forgives our sin, but often there are consequences that, that I guess there are always consequences that flow with sin, but some of them make life incredibly uh, hard for us. Uh, we look out and we see loved ones that we have and we see the course of action they are taking and we know about their sin and we think, where is this going to lead? lead? How, how will it end up for them? And we struggle with all of that. We also face life-altering decisions at times. We just don't know where to turn. And it's likely that Jesus was saying, during the entire time I am gone from you to heaven, I'm gone from you, my, fo my followers, it will be time, it is time for you to fast. But he's saying to those with whom he's dealing right here, that it's not right then when he is present with them. The good news of the gospel is that there is a time coming when every condition that moves men and women to fast will be removed. Jesus, the bridegroom, is coming back for us. He's going to raise the dead, and he's going to uh, change their body, give them bodies like his glorious body and change the bodies of those who are alive. He is coming back for his bride, his church. And all of this wonderful uh, change will take place. And Christians will enjoy fellowship with Jesus forever and ever on a planet that has been stripped of every effect of sin and the curse. In Revelation 19, 6 through 9, that time when Jesus returns and we fellowship with him in a new heaven and a new earth, is called the wedding supper of the Lamb. No fasting then, we will be with our Savior. In chapter 2, 21 through 22, Jesus gives two illustrations from daily life to explain why his disciples do not submit to the fasting practices of the Pharisees and John the Baptist's followers. Jesus says that if you take a piece of new cloth and you try to apply that to a tear in a threadbare garment. You wash that repaired garment, and when the new patch shrinks, it's going to rip away from that old garment. You don't do the patch any good. You don't do the old garment any good. It just doesn't work. Also, in the Middle East of Jesus' day, uh, wine was contained in wineskins, usually the skins of goats. And if you have an old wineskin that's been out in the sun and it's cracked and it's fragile and you put new wine in it, the fermentation process is going to blow that wineskin uh, apart. The skin is going to burst. Jesus says no one adds the new to these old things. And with these illustrations, Jesus is explaining why he ate with tax collectors and notorious sinners. 
why he won't join the Pharisees and John's disciples in their man-made feast, why he won't stop his hungry disciples from walking along a field of grain, picking enough for a snack, rubbing it together in their hands, blowing away the chaff, and eating a snack. The Pharisees said that was work, that was reaping, that was thrashing. Jesus, the law didn't say that, and Jesus won't forbid his disciples from doing that, even though that's the Pharisaic law. And it also explains why on the Sabbath, in a worship service in the Lord's house, Jesus will ask a man with a withered hand to stand up, and he will heal that man on the Lord's day in front of everyone when the Pharisees consider healing to be a violation of the fourth commandment. Pharisees would attend to someone who was sick, but only if they were in imminent danger of dying. If they weren't, they would take care of it the next day. Thank you. Now, what the Pharisees did to the biblical teaching about uh, fasting and about the Sabbath, uh, they did to all of God's laws. They defined what keeping the law meant, and then they equated their definitions with the law of God itself. And the effect was to add so much to the original structure of God's law, what God had built, that it was not recognizable. And this really is the rational outcome of salvation by works, isn't it? If you think that you need to be saved by your works, you will keep making a bigger and bigger list of good things that you need to do and bad things that you need to refrain from. Jesus is making it clear that he has not come to remodel the religious monstrosity that Israel's religious leaders have constructed. He has come to do a gut job on it, to restore the pure God-revealed worship and fellowship with God that Abraham had enjoyed. Jesus will affirm many, many times in the gospel that he did not come to demolish God's law. The scribes and the Pharisees will accuse him of that regularly, but that's not what he came for. In Matthew 5, 17 through 20, he categorically states that God's law will stand until the current heavens and earth pass away. Jesus' teaching with regard to the law is perfectly congruent with the law as God gave it in Holy Scripture. But the teaching of the Pharisees is not. Jesus in Mark 7, 7 tells them that Isaiah was prophesying about them when Isaiah wrote, they worship God in vain, their teachings are but the rules of men. Jesus announces that what he offers, a righteousness that is not earned but freely given by God to all who trust in the Messiah, who will come and live the perfect life under God's law and die for sin, is totally incompatible with the structure that the Pharisees have built. They have made God's eternal plan of salvation unrecognizable by what they have added to it. Their system teaches that a person can atone for his or her sins and earn God's favor by one's own efforts in keeping rules. Now, the total incompatibility of this is seen in the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18, 9 through 14. Jesus says a Pharisee 
and a tax collector viewed as wicked, wicked sinners, as was mentioned um, by Pastor Kozlowski a week ago, viewed as horrible sinner, go to the temple to pray. Jesus says the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. Imagine that, praying about yourself. He offers up to God the sacrifices of his moral accomplishments, his successes at keeping all these rules. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. You see, the Pharisee compares himself to this other worshiper who is viewed by society as an incredibly wicked sinner, and then to himself, he looks incredibly good. He compares himself to somebody viewed as really bad, and it helps him to justify himself and to feel self-righteous. But that's something we all do, isn't it? We compare ourselves to others and come off feeling pretty good because we find people more wicked than us. Jesus continues, but the tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up into heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Lord's commentary on that parable is the tax collector was the one who went away justified. He knew that his only hope was the free mercy that God extended to him and to have himself declared to be justified by Almighty God. He could not justify himself. Now look, we've read the Ten Commandments this morning, and most of you have known them from the time that you were little children. We all know that we have violated those. We violated them many times. And when you understand that Jesus teaches that a violation of the law is not just what we do, but it goes to the heart issues. It goes deep inside us. When we contemplate committing those sins, we have sinned. And what that means for each of us is we have a huge mountain of sins that we have committed. And we naturally sense that payment needs to be made for those sins if we're to have fellowship with Almighty God. And the Bible affirms what we sense. The Bible says in Isaiah 59, 2, and in many other places, uh, similar things, your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Each of us here this morning is either the Pharisee or the tax collector. We are either trusting in our own goodness to atone for our sins like the Pharisee, or we, or we are offering God nothing that we have done but simply begging him to have mercy on us like the tax collector did. It's when we become the tax collector that we find a righteousness from God apart from law, God's law or man's law. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, Romans 3, 21 and 22. Which are you this morning? Our hope here is that if you have never done so, that this morning you pray the prayer that the tax collector prayed. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that in that prayer, you tell your heavenly Father that you desire more than anything else to have Jesus, that you are accepting 
his righteousness, the perfect life that he lived and the sacrifice that he offered up as your only hope, your only salvation, the only way your sins can be taken away. For those of us who are here who have trusted Jesus, are trusting him, it would be very good for our spiritual health to seriously consider and to practice fasting as a part of our private worship. John Piper has written a book on fasting. It's about 125 pages. He's done a tremendous amount of study in the scriptures and uh, in the church fathers and the saints of old in this little book that he's produced that you can download for free. It's called A Hunger for God. And this is what he says about fasting. Might God not ordain that his fullest blessings will come when we prevail in prayer with the intensity of fasting? That kind of intensification of prayer is what fasting is. It is the physical exclamation point at the end of the sentence, we are hungry for you, O God, to come to us in power. It is a cry with our body, not just our soul. I really mean it, Lord. This much I hunger for you. I want you more than food. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your revelation. Thank you for uh, addressing all the things in Scripture that are necessary for life with you and for our happiness in this realm and for all eternity. Father, I pray that if there is someone here who is trusting their goodness to get them to you, that they would confess the impossibility of, that, of all of that, that they, that they would realize that even one sin uh, causes us to be subject to the wrath of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin are death. And I would pray, Father, that they would uh, see the cross that they would see Christ uh, lifted up, dying for their sins, making atonement for them. And I pray, Father, that they would ask Christ to come into their lives and to take away their sin and give them life everlasting. Father, I pray that you would work that grace in our midst this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.